Welcome to the podcast series, Don't Argue Stupid People. I'm your host, Emil Geeson. Welcome back, and thank you very much for all those who have subscribed to the podcast series, and it's grown massively since the first one, so I appreciate you sharing it with your friends and family. If you're watching this on YouTube, go over to the podcasts and wherever you get podcasts from, subscribe there. And if you're listening to this, please go over to YouTube and physically see what's going on. So we're going to start making the videos as well to um, to put on YouTube as well as online. So thank you very much. Before we start this podcast, I'd like to thank my sponsors who are Frontier Risks and check them out at www.frontierrisks.com. who are a security and risk provider for all your training needs. So go check them guys out there. So who are we going to be talking to today? So we're going to talk to an old friend of mine called Robert Hoey, a.k.a. The Fox. And he's, he's an interesting character. He started my first documentary, Robin Hood Complex, and he was one of the volunteers I met out in Iraq. Who He was with the Peshmerga, who's fight against Islamic State, as well as working in a hospital, providing medical treatment to civilians and soldiers. So his group is called Shadow of Hope, and they're a clandestine militant group of rebels, volunteers from around the world who go into war zones and they carry out medical treatment as well as fighting wars. And Robert describes his group as humanitarian mercenaries. And let's meet him now, the CEO of Shadow of Hope. My name is Robert Hoy. I'm the Director of Operations and Co-Founder of Shadows of Hope, an international charity organization that's 501c3 rated here in America. Uh, our job is basically to go to war zones, hostile areas, uh, places that are too remote or too dangerous for traditional aid. And we go, we render um, basic training. We go and render uh, surgical care, medical care. We also provide our own humanitarian security elements. We do believe that humanitarian security is part of humanitarian aid. We fight in wars. Um, this year has marked our sixth war from our seventh year. We fought against ISIS in three countries, fought against two major governments, and just countless rebel groups all over the world. I first met you in Iraq back in 2015, was it? Yes. When you were with the Peshmerga teaching and medical training. Since then, or before that, actually, you are in Burma. And since then, you've returned to Burma, you've returned to Kurdistan and everything else. So you are, what's the best way to describe you? You are the true Robin Hood complex in the sense that the, the essential volunteer that goes around the world, giving up your time free of charge, sourcing and scratching around to find funding to do this and you go out and carry out military operations in a clandestine way as well as medical care for people so why do you do what you do so i believe what we do is actually it's evolved from a need um you know before i even started shadows of hope i've i was you know all over the world and i kept seeing that there is this big vacancy when it comes to humanitarian aid it's it's not enough to to give you know medical aid it's not enough to teach um, when I was in Burma, uh, the first time I ever did any kind of work overseas was actually in Burma. And I remember waking up in a little bamboo clinic, and in the morning, we had more than 100 people waiting right out the door. And it turns out there is a small squad of Tatmadaw in the area, which is the Burmese military wing, um, of about seven or eight people that were just going around shooting people, lighting them on fire, tearing down homes. And we started to realize that, that all we're doing is just basically, you know, bandaging the problem. We're not, we're just treating the symptoms. We're not actually fixing the problem. And the problem was at that point in time, the government, you know, and, and being Corinne, which is 
you know, the Korean state in Burma, being Korean is apparently illegal and it just automatically marks you as the target. So it's actually easier to pick up a rifle and defend those people than just funnel tens and thousands of dollars with a medical aid when we're really not addressing the main problem, which is the fact that it, it's illegal to be certain of cities and parts of the world. Um, parts of the world cannot, you know, you, you can't find traditional medical aid when we're in Iraq up in Mount Shingle. Um, you know, we're the ones that took over the UN clinic because it was too dangerous to go up there. Right. So it, it's, there's this huge need, not only for medicine, but also for, for combat security forces to go in and not just teach medicine or do medicine, but provide security and actually teach these people how to defend themselves as well. Well, I do believe that charity is a failure of government, but I don't pretend to know fully the extent of what happens in the world. Um, I know the Middle East, for instance, um, is this huge quagmire of politics. I know that ISIS is tolerated to a certain degree. I know that Turkey is tolerated to a certain degree. Um, and we're starting to get big enough to the point now where we start to get involved. Um, other governments and state actors starting to notice us and starting to take heed of what we're doing because, you know, we have the potential to change so much that's right there in the battlefield um, that it can kind of change what's happening politically in that particular region. And I don't claim to understand what's happening with that. I have no idea, you know, I have, a, actually I have a small idea of why ISIS is tolerated in the Middle East. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And there are rumors that, you know, ISIS originally was funded by the U.S. and trained by the U.S. as a way to fight against Assad. But I don't claim to know everything that happens politically. Um, there are these huge gaps and there are places in the world that governments just aren't interested in. You know, nobody's interested in the Congo. Nobody's interested in Mozambique or Burma. And these are some of the places where, you know, people need help. Nobody's really interested in Shengal, uh, because there's nothing politically there that's worth any value. Uh, but to us, you know, it's about human lives. I cannot pretend that I'm going to sit here and say like human life is important to me when it is. But the thing is that we are a combat group and we do spend a lot of time, you know, in, in active combat, which means that we do, you know, pull triggers. And unfortunately, you know, when a time comes, we do kill, uh, you know, people like ISIS and African Liberation Front and things like that. So obviously from the Philippines. So I'm not going to pretend like it's this big, huge, like higher calling for human life. What I will say is that while we drastically vary with our staff and what our motivation is for doing this, I think everybody does agree that everybody's kind of here for the, for the preservation of self-determination. And that's that it's not my place to say that this group is wrong or this group is right or your belief is wrong. Um, but I do believe that it is our place to say and protect people's rights to say what they, or not say, but what they want to do with their own lives. So I might not necessarily agree with Christianity or with Islam, but it's not my place to say that it's wrong. So if we see a group that's being repressed just because they're of a certain ethnicity or of a certain religion, that's a place we need to go in order to preserve their right to do that. Um, and what they choose to do past that point is up to them. We've told the Kurds many times that, you know, we'll help you fight, but if it turns out that you become super nationalistic and you start, let's say, killing Yazidis in your own country, then we'll come back and we'll fight you too. You know, it, basically at the end of the day, it's about the right to self-determination and that's what drives us forward, is that everybody has the right to choose what they want to do with their own life. Nobody has the right to come in and say that your belief is wrong or this is wrong, um, of course, within certain degrees. Well, the main question everyone's probably asking is, why are you wearing an eye patch? Well, uh, everybody who asks me now, I tell a different story to, mostly just stupid to keep it interesting and entertaining. I tell people that I have a sneeze and I held my nose and it came out, or that I was erasing something and I sneezed and it went into the eye. But really, what happened was that... Because it does actually make you look like a pirate. It's really ironic you say that because actually Shadows of Hope is actually run just like a 17th century pirate ship. We actually vote and everything. Any kind of plunder we take in the field, 10% goes to the organization and the rest is split up between the crew. 
Um, every decision is voted upon. People vote upon their own commanders. What happens to them? So what do you mean plundering the battlefield? Are you, are you talking about the spoils of war? Or are you taking like watches and stuff of, of dead bodies? What do you actually mean by it? Well, so plundering is probably the wrong word um, because also plundering is illegal. And, you know, we can't take goods back to sell or anything like that. But let's say... For instance, in Kurdistan, you know, we, we take a dash position and there's RPGs, there's Dushkas, 12.7s, 14.5s, you know, things like that, PG-17s or PG-7s. So we can actually take that and sell it back to the Peshmerga to get a certain cut of what we get back. Things like that, you know, some people find, um, you know, passports, cell phones that other countries might be interested in, um, you know, that kind of thing. It's We rarely do that. Um, we try to leave, you know, things alone in the field, but also... You know, there are times where these guys risked their lives. They came out here to fight. They came out here to, to do what they wanted to do. They came out here to preserve this, right? And, like, I believe that they should get something in compensation. You know, my, my this charity has no money. All right, we're all self-funded. Every year, I mean, we get less than $2,000 worth of public donations. Um, so if there is a way to help people in the field and there's a way to make money doing it, then there's nothing wrong with it. And there's also nothing illegal about it because we cooperate fully with, with both, you know, our own governments and foreign governments. Yeah, but you still haven't told us how you lost your eye. Oh, sorry, we got sidetracked. Um, so I was at Zankar in 2015 um, during the war against ISIS. I was with the Kurdish Peshmerga, and we were patrolling from point to point. And it was just a random mortar attack. It wasn't anything cool. It wasn't like a Rambo moment where I got up and I saw it was missing. Um, it was just a basically like a little 60 mil hit near our position. And I got really lucky in the sense that when it hit, um, I got concussed, but I didn't get hit by any shrapnel. So it perforated my left eardrum. And it basically concussed the retina inside of the eye. So I immediately went blind in the eye. I didn't think much of it. The eye looked fine. It wasn't bleeding. Um, when I got back to the States, they, they you know, took a look at it and they're like, oh, by the way, your retina separated. We can't reattach it. Um, and they basically just pulled that out at that point. I wish it was a cooler story, but like everything else in my life, it just kind of came out super disappointing. Well, I can imagine many people watching and listening to this will say that's quite a cool story. So you were out in Kurdistan. You only got back to the United States last week. What's the current situation with Islamic State out there at the moment? So not really hearing much, actually, in the media. So I like to make a joke with people that the Islamic State wasn't necessarily defeated. They were just on paternity leave. Um, but what happened was is that everybody thought they were done, they were beaten, and immediately people started fighting amongst each other past that point. It's really strange because ISIS was this organization that was kind of unified almost everybody in the Middle East by hate where everybody was actually kind of sort of cooperating and nobody was fighting each other, all the attendance focused on ISIS. The minute the ISIS was done, they immediately started fighting each other and things just internally just went to complete shit. Um, right now, there, there are, you know, places in both Syria and Iraq that are just kind of overflowing with ISIS. Um, Diyala province, you know, is, is a really, really big one right now that we're actually focused on. But it's not just there, it's kind of all over the place. It's because people just ignore them. You know, ISIS likes to hide in these areas between like where Iraq and Kurdistan is, like these political areas where neither country really wants to do anything about it. So they just sit there and they hide and they train and they multiply and they launch these attacks. Um, so it, it's definitely gotten bigger, but the coalition has stepped up as well. You know, they're starting to, to turn things around. They, I, can't, I can't even tell how many commanders they've killed in the past two months. Every time I you know, open up the news, it's, you know, some other high level commander and dash has been killed or the next leader has been killed or this big mufti was killed and, and things like this do you, do you think that's propaganda or are islamic state fighters and commanders being replaced that quickly that their coalition are killing so many of them i don't see it really as propaganda because we know these people you know we were out in the field we know the guys that are going out there we took part in some combat ops as well it's not propaganda 
Um, ISIS is there. They are not anywhere near as strong as they used to be, but they're still there and they are getting bigger. Our biggest concern right now is actually not in Iraq or Syria. It's actually in Africa, which is where ISIS is getting completely out of control. Well, you're totally right. Is Islamic State have had to move their sphere of influence to other countries, mainly developing countries, because it's a lot easier to operate rather than in the Middle East due to the coalition, the Russians, the Iranians. It's very hard for them to actually operate. So, yeah, I can totally understand how they moved into places in Africa and also the Far East where they can exploit the power vacuum and also the vulnerabilities of certain ethnic groups out there. Absolutely. Um, Central African Republic, uh, Mozambique, Tanzania, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Somalia. I mean, these are places that do have some small U.S. presence, but nowhere near the amount that you know, we had over in Iraq and Syria. And uh, the Islamic State of the Central African uh, province, um, Al-Shabaab, things like that. In some places, some of these groups are coordinating. Some places are fighting. But in the past year, actually in the past two years, there's been a very huge, large increase in the amount of Islamic State attacks and the complexity of their attacks as well. I mean, there are confirmed links to, you know, members from Syria traveling down to Mozambique, Tanzania, and training some of the fighters there, and they're organizing and getting more and more complicated. So Africa is definitely getting out of control right now. It's actually on our radar for going to next, but it's, it's so, so many people are focused on the Middle East right now, and they're ignoring the rest of the world. Um, they're expanding in the Philippines, they're expanding in Central Asia, in like Uzbekistan, um, you know, uh, a little bit in Kazakhstan, you know, Turkmenistan, things like that. But Africa is definitely a place where they actually control some pretty large swaths of land. So Shadow of Hope, you have a lot of volunteers. Are they predominantly British and American or do you get volunteers from all over the world? Actually, for some reason, we're really popular in Finland and Australia. Um, we do have a lot of Americans and Brits and they've all been some pretty stand-up guys, but I don't know what happened. For some reason, we got really popular in, in both Australia and Finland. And those are some of our biggest you know, places that we take volunteers from now. So Daniel Burke, he's a YPG volunteer that went out to Syria. He was with the YPG fighting. And the links between the YPG and the PKK is that the British government deemed that they're a terrorist organisation. So Daniel, on his return, was arrested. He was going through court. However, he's just been thrown out of court to say, what well, he's not going to have to answer any terrorism charges. However, British courts named your group Shadow of Hope as the facilitator to get these men for all these volunteers from around the world into places like Iraq and Syria. So they were really saying that your group is a, a terrorist facilitator. And this is what they actually said. Because I sent you um, the message and the news article from Sky News, actually. And it states the mechanism by which those who wish to go and fight in Syria can do so under the cloak of humanitarian. So what they're trying to say there is that you're using the humanitarian side of your organisation as a disguise to get men from A to B to go fight. How does that make you feel to hear British courts, British police and the media calling your group a terrorist facilitating group? Uh, we didn't really take that seriously because, you know, more than half operations are medical. We have doctors, we have nurses. I mean, you can look at our Facebook page, you can look at videos, look at the news. And most of the time we're doing something with the homeless. We're doing something at hospitals, training, teaching. Um, the issue is actually to us, not necessarily terrorism in general. It's just that the UK has very strict rules on when you go to Syria, who you can and can't work with, or even if you can go at this point. So they're not looking at us as, as if the sense that, you know, where we're facilitating terrorism that we're just a conduit or corridor because it's a locational thing. They don't give a shit about what we do in Burma, in Africa, when we were there in Central Asia, they're only focused on Syria. And this is why we don't take it as a legit terrorism charge, because number one, we're fighting ISIS alongside both you know, US and UK troops, and that's not terrorism. 
you know, and number two is the fact that if we were facilitating terrorism in any way, shape or form or of any kind, you know, why is nobody paying attention to the work that we're doing in Africa or in Southeast Asia or in Central Asia or, or anywhere else in the world? It's your only focus on Syria. And I believe a lot of that is politically motivated because of, you know, Turkey's involvement in NATO and Turkey, you know, Turkish ties to both the UK and the US government. Well, yeah, like you're saying that you touched on there is obviously the PKK, the People's Workers Party, which is seen as a terrorist organization by the Turkish state over um, the fact that for years there's been terrorist attacks in southern Turkey and also in the mainland of Turkey and the YPG linked to them. So you can see how problematic it is for groups that guys who are going over to the volunteers who are closely linked to the PKK, that Turkey is putting political pressure potentially on the UK and the USA to arrest volunteers like yourself. Have you returned into the USA um received any unwanted attention from government forces or the intelligence service? Um, so, so I'm watched pretty closely because of some of the places I've been and the places that I go and what I do. Um, but the thing is, is that when it comes to, actually, let me answer your first question. I'm sorry. Um, so any of my volunteers that come back to the U.S., we're all asked questions. You know, we're not brought up on terrorism charges. We're not immediately arrested. Um, you know, customs will just come by and they'll, they'll pick us up right off of the plane and they'll, they'll you know, be pretty chill about us. Ask questions like, hey, what were you doing? You know, who are you with? Things like that. Um, you know, they'll check our passports, check our phones, uh, just basically doing their due diligence, you know, making sure that we're not lying, that we're not ISIS fighters. And that's fine. That's acceptable. You know, I realize that our government has to do that. But, you know, none of us have ever been brought up on terrorism charges. Uh, you know, we've had follow-up questions before because, you know, we've been to Syria and there are some, some pretty interesting links to the PKK. And the U.S. does legitimately view the PKK as a terrorist organization. Um, and that's a different story. But, but as it comes to like unwanted attention, I know we're watched, but we're not necessarily, you know, like here, we're not thrown in jail. We're not, you know, pressured to do anything. It's just kind of like, hey, this is what it is. And it's not that big of a deal. So what are you? Are you a volunteer, a mercenary, a humanitarian? What are you? How would you describe yourself? So we have been referred to as humanitarian mercenaries before because, you know, we fight, but we fight for free. We fight for foreign governments or, you know, against foreign rebellion groups or with them as well, depending on what, you know, we feel is necessary at that point. It's really hard to put a pin in what exactly we are because this organization is involved in so much. We do so much, you know, we have clean water projects. We have combat projects. We have, uh, you know, training training modes that we do for both, you know, for, for security details and for doctors, for nurses, for EMTs. We've done infrastructure. We've done search and rescue before. It's, you can't really pin us down as any one thing. And this is the only reason why this organization has survived for so long is because we're so varied in what we can do that if you just deploy strictly with the intent of medicine, like in Kurdistan, and the minute you can't do medicine, that organization has to shut down and leave because there's nothing else to do. As a meantime, we can just roll over like, all right, cool. We can't do medicine. We'll train. We can't train. We'll go fight. We can't fight. We'll go train other fighters. We can't do that. We'll get involved in politics. We can't do that. We'll find some local refugee camp or village and we'll dig a clean well. We'll build a school. We'll teach. You know, there's so much that we can do. We're so versatile. And this is the only reason why we've, we've ever survived for this long. And it's because of the volunteers that we have. Everybody brings something new and unique to the table. And we kind of capitalize on that. You know, they're, they're fourth multipliers in their own right. So where does groups like Shadow of Hope to get your funding from? Who funds you? Uh, so most, most of the time we're funded by ourselves. That'd be for our own money. Um, we get too few public donations right now to really even make it, you know, noteworthy. And I understand that because, you know, as we're brought up in UK courts, you know, as we're like a conduit for terrorism, which is completely insane, even though it was thrown out of court and we were found to not be that, 
the damage is still done. Just like what happened to Dan Newey and his family, that damage is there forever now. They'll ever have that taint of terrorism floating over their head. And it doesn't matter how many people we save. It doesn't matter where we go and, and how many ISIS fighters we kill. You know, that one accusation of being a conduit for terrorism has done permanent damage to us. And we were already barely floating by on donations and that that's hurt us twice as bad now. So we're going to have to rely on our own funds. You know, we're going to have to work. And, and when I come back to the States, I teach almost full time and I may make a ridiculous amount of money doing it. And then I just dump all my money into my company and then I use that to fund projects. So is, is it a vanity project or is, are you actually helping people really in the bigger picture? This is the farthest thing from a vanity project because like legitimately we, we've done so much in the world. I mean, how many veterans have we given their lives back? How many veterans have, can go home now when they had nothing else and they can work and we give them certifications? How many people have we saved in the field? You know, how many ISIS fighters have we killed? How, how many you know, villages have we defended? This is the farthest thing from a vanity project I've ever seen. And the thing is, is that it's not something that we do for you know, um, like just to look good because number one, I don't look good, right? That That's just flat out true. Um, and the thing is, is that it's, it's a different kind of charity. And the fact that we're still here must mean something that it's actually working and what we do does work. Um, and it's more of a sense to me, it's more of a sense of duty than anything else. You know, I, I'm never going to have a home. I'm never going to have a family of my own. I'll never have kids. I'll never own property. Like this is it. This is full time for me. That's not vanity, that's duty. But also everybody, you know, joins for a different reason. I'm sure some people join because they love the glory of war, because they want to go and help people and take pictures for Instagram. Some people join for redemption. Some people join to, you know, for adventure. Some people join because they want to learn. They want to educate. You know, they want to see what, out, what else is out there in the world. Everybody joins for a different reason. You know, um, so. Well, yeah, that's what a documentary, both my documentaries, Robin Hood Complex, one in, on ISIS and the one on Ukraine is following volunteers like yourself. And like you're saying there, you're totally hitting that on the head is everyone's got a different reason for doing it. Everyone's got their motivation, what drives them. And you clearly get a lot of veterans, like you touched on there, you get a lot of ex-servicemen who come along. You never served in the military yourself, but you've been in a lot of combat situations over the years and probably more than most people that have served in the armed forces. And do you see a difference between the veterans that come over to your group and the guys who haven't got any combat experience in their sense of what they want to get out of it? Is it generally, what I mean is, do a lot of the veterans, like saying, want redemption, they want to prove themselves? What, what is it that you see amongst them? So ironically, actually, I see that less in veterans than I see in civilians. Uh, most of the vets who come by, you know, they, they seem to have this higher calling, you know, that, that warrior spirit, that warrior class is left inside of them, and they're no longer functioning in normal society. So they want to come over here, and it's not to, you know, to, to show off or improve or, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, they join because they're simply looking to continue their service. Right. Um, we see a lot of civilians who apply. Um, and ironically, I used to be just like one of those people who want to get out there. Well, they want to shoot. They want to kill. They want combat. They want to prove themselves. They want to be a man. And this is why we're returning down close to, I'd say, 94 percent of the people that apply right now. just because either they have the wrong attitude or they don't have the right skill level. Um, I got really lucky in the sense that, you know, I, I didn't go through a traditional military style. Um, five years ago when you and I did the documentary or when you did the documentary on me, um, I still at that time felt like I was not a real veteran, but since then, you know, I've actually had two separate commissions as an officer and two separate foreign militaries. I've gone through a ridiculous amount of training in the meantime, both for my own men and from the outside agencies and organizations. And I do sort of feel like a veteran now, but it's also 
you know, it, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day because just like my bets that I've learned from as well, you know, I feel like there's nothing to really prove at this point that I'm out there with a purpose just like they are. And we're there to do what we came out there to do. We're not out there to prove anything. We're not out there to prove that we're right or that we're men. You know, we're out there to make a difference, to make change, to continue our service to mankind, basically. Because you must have experienced that. Have you ever experienced any hostilities from guys who actually served in the military? Yeah. Yeah, we have both both physically, in person, and especially online. Um, but the thing is that our loudest critics are, are always, always the ones who never deployed, never seen combat, or just kind of sat in a fob all day and pretty much did nothing. And they, they on and on about how real operators work and how they would do this and they would do that. And, and you know, they're real veterans. And it's just like, it, it's like you said it best, man, your last podcast, you know. You can't argue with stupid people. Like, why even bother this point? I have nothing to prove. The series is called Don't Argue With Stupid People. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and Don't Argue With Stupid People. The reason, yeah, is because we all do it. We all get caught in that trap where we argue with stupid people and then afterwards we, we don't feel any better about ourselves. We're just like, why did I do that? Why did I waste such an amount of time arguing with that idiot? Um, but we go back for it. We go back and do it again. It's because that's what we do. And like you're saying, when you're out there and you... You have been in several combat situations. You've spent years of your life actually in war zones and such. So I suppose it's when people go, well, you haven't got a military background, but you've probably done more operational kinetic um, warfare than a lot of people do who served in the armed forces at that time. So where's next for you then? So we're looking at uh, one of two major deployments. Um, we're looking more Africa. We've seen the beginning, a lot of traction there. We're getting good on contacts. You know, we're going to send the record team over soon. Um, we're also looking at the Philippines as well. Um, the government is struggling against Abu Sayyaf, but there's also a problem because we are an American organization. You know, Duterte or whatever his name is in charge of Philippines is not the biggest fan of Americans. And I also need to make sure that my own guys are protected as well. You know, so we don't want to get involved in anything super political like what happened in Syria and Iraq. Um, we want a pretty open-ended deployment. and want to make sure when these guys hit the ground that they're able to do the things they came out there to do. Um, and it makes it really difficult to do that in highly politically charged areas. And that's why maybe we're not going to be looking so much to the Philippines or Central Asia. We're probably more looking at Africa at this point. Which country in Africa are you looking at? Um, Central African Republic, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Tanzania, Mozambique. We're all kind of up in the air right now because we're all kind of facing the same problem and it's the same organization we're struggling against. So we have, we have our own um, Intel team that actually like does open source work and actually makes phone calls and does research. And they're, they're basically digging up new information every day. And you know, my job is to kind of go through all that and kind of decide what's our best off for getting in to actually do things we came out there to do. And we haven't hit that point yet because there's so much information coming out almost every day. I mean, you know, um, the Islamic State in Africa is so huge and massive and it's so out of control. Um, you know, that we could probably just deploy tomorrow and find something to do. But I want to make sure that this, this political bullshit that usually haunts us, you know, like within Kurdistan, within Burma, where we get caught up in these stupid political games, I want to make sure that we, we cut all that fat out. And we can just hit the ground and do these things instead of wasting time on meetings. But the thing is, with like a group like yourself, you're turning up, you, you are, like you're saying, humanitarian mercenaries people know who your group is it's, you can do a simple google search and work out who you are so they know exactly what you're coming from so do you go through conventional ways of getting into country or are you crossing borders illegally to get in there um how, how do you do it so we 
do everything. Okay, so we prefer to go in the conventional way. We prefer to go in, you know, as humanitarians and do medical work and teach, um, you know, the combat cell, like I said, is part of that as well. Uh, in certain places like Burma, for instance, and then parts of Syria, if we don't have a legitimate way in and there are people who need our help that are requesting our help and nobody else can get there, then yeah, we don't mind breaking the law a little bit just to go and help people because, and I think you and I talked about this in the documentary, but any law that says you can't go in and help this person, any law that says it's illegal to give aid, it's illegal to go to this country is not a law worth respecting in the first place. You know, just like uh, when the UK government said that we were a conduit, you know, for funneling terrorism into Syria, uh, and that we're under the cloak of humanitarian aid. There is no cloak of humanitarian aid. We openly admit that we are basically going in there for, for combat duty. We didn't do it in Syria this time because it's against Turkey, which is a NATO ally, but we don't try to hide the fact that we fight. There's no reason to, you know? Um, it, it's just, it's another part of what makes us us. We don't try to hide it. We don't sneak in the places under the guise of something else. You know, um, when we go to these places, we have to slip through borders, but we're not trying to slip through borders and saying like, oh, we're here for medical. And then we have a bunch of guns and medical bags. No, it will flat out tell people when the situation you know, warrants it. Of course, we have OPSEC and things like that. But, you know, flat out tell them, yeah, we're here to fight. We're here to defend this particular village or rescue these girls or, or do this or do that. There's no cloak and dagger stuff here. We're open and honest about it. There is no cloak. So, and that's the point you're saying there. You you're not you don't hide the fact that you carry weapons. You don't hide the fact that you carry out combat operations. But at the same time, you are doing um, humanitarian work. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting one. So obviously, anyone who's listening to you and seeing this will think, "Fucking hell, these guys are quite cool." Is you're cool? You're like the A team, aren't you? Really, just without um, BA brokers and the money and without the van. So. How do people join your group? How do you get recruits? So most of our groups come from um, like single points of contact within people that we already know. So like uh, friends of people who served with us right now, we've got a little over 130 people that have served with us on deployments and they usually refer friends. Um, we have a lot of outside references as well, but to be honest, most of these guys are, I'm sure they're good people, but they're like, I have no military experience, no medical experience, and I want to be trained up. And we're at this point now where we're actually, you know, where we're, we're we have we have ex you know SAS people joining us, we have ex special forces joining us. Like we have these people with real experience and real skills, that really, and this is going to sound really weird, but we we can't hold them back by taking a bunch of boots to them. You know, we we when we hit the ground, we just have to run. We don't have time to train up these people to to you know start from day one. Is that we need more experienced people. We need better quality candidates coming through because that's how this organization exists. You know, I don't run every single part of this. Is that I give my men a lot of autonomy. And in turn, you know, they serve their purpose. They do what they came out there to do, but they, they kind of run things by themselves, almost like cells, you know, um, not, not to refer that back to the whole terrorism thing, but, you know, something happens to me, they still carry out of the spirit of shadows open, they continue operations. If people want to join is we need experienced people. Um, we need people with, with experience in something because we cannot have people who are unproven in combat, who are unproven in medicine with no training joining with these ideological, you know, fantasies in their head of, I want to go shoot. I want to go take part in the war. I want to help the innocent. And then, you know, they go out in the real world, like, holy shit, is this what it's actually like? You know, I can't afford investing in something like that. I can't afford their plane ticket, you know, throwing away eight weeks of time for medical training and then 12 weeks for military training. It's, we don't have time for that. We're, we, we hit the ground now. We're hitting it very fast and we have to just immediately, you know, shoot off and start off. And so we can't hang back and train up new people. So where did you get the name Shadow of Hope? What does it actually mean to you? it's been so long at this point in time. It's, 
Shadows, it's really hard to pin that down. Um, I mean, to me, of course, it means exactly what we're doing. It's that, you know, we're, we're working, you know, in this, these dark environments, these dark areas, these low light situations, and we're forced to make these decisions and do this kind of, you know, not wet working, but this kind of like, like under the table work in order just to give some kind of hope to people. Um, you know, we have to break laws sometimes, you know, like in Burma, for instance, if you're, you know, Karen or if you're uh, Rohingya, you know, it's illegal to get medicine. It's illegal to have an education. You know, those laws we don't mind breaking. So we have to do these things that are, that are you know, technically considered illegal according to the law in order to help these people. It's, it's literally, we have to do this kind of shadow work, you know, these working in these environments in order to get shit done. Um, and the whole part just comes from the charity because I've been in horrible situations for so long now. Um, I can see that, that hope is really what drives people forward. It's, it's both the source of our greatest strength and our greatest weakness. I've seen people hold on to it well past the point that they should have like realistically just, you know, come back to reality. And I've also seen people who should have died or who should have given up. And even some of our own guys and myself at certain points where we didn't because we had hoped the situation would change that we could get through. Um, pinning it down to this one particular point though, is just impossible because, you know, we don't have a single route. We don't have a single origin story because the organization since we last talked has grown and expanded so much and we have so many different people now. And instead of it just being driven by me, you know, this is my mission, my vision, my ideology is that we're literally just like that pirate ship. You know, it, it's, it's a group thing now. You know, we have roots in, in the UK and Australia and Burma and Thailand and, and Finland, you know, in, in America, in, in, in the Congo and Kurdistan. It's just it, that, that term, you know, shadows of hope, CIAV, I believe is in Kurdish, just has, it just works in almost every culture and people just automatically get it like, oh, that's cool, you know, but then also when they start to think about it, like, oh, you know what, I think I can finally understand that, I can finally get that. So what would you say to people that turn around and say, leave it to the military, leave it to real charities like the Red Cross as such, the UN, what would you say to them saying that you guys are just playing and getting in the way? Uh, so we, we have these comments a lot, you know, these critics say, oh, well, you know, leave it to real doctors, leave it to the real military. Um, I don't like to counter this as one of two points. First one is that when we're in Mount Shengal, where, where was the real military? Where was the Red Cross? Where was the UN? In Africa. You mentioned there Mount Shinja. And what that is, for those who don't know, was when the Islamic State, the Yazidi people who are ethically not Muslim, um, up on the Mount Sinjar, what happened is ISIS surrounded the mountain and all the locals, the Zidi people, fled up there and over 5,000 people were killed by Islamic State. There was a massive outcry by um, public opinion to say, right, the military, you need to go and help these people. And it was a very lame, half-arsed effort by the coalition. They didn't really help them. Um, 5,000 people were killed, murdered by Islamic State. Thousands of women were taken as sex spam slaves to markets in Mosul and Raqqa, and it was a massive failure. I actually met your group up on Mount Sinjar, and I saw you had a pop-up clinic where you're doing medical help for the locals, and also saw your other call signs, your other men that were up on Mount Sinjar that were fighting against Islamic State. So I totally get what you're saying, that when the militaries fail... The charities don't have the security situation. There's clearly a void and a vacuum where groups like Shadow of Hope can actually fill in. Realistically, what makes us different from them besides the fact that they're state actors and we're not? You know, I mean, most of us have had more training in traditional military. Most of us have had more training in traditional medics. You know, what makes them professional and us not? Um, anybody who spends any time with us in the field at this point literally has nothing negative to say. 
I mean, there's always things that we can definitely improve upon. We're always changing. We're constantly trying to get better. You know, but the thing is that people who have worked with us in the field, nobody ever says, like, we should leave this to professionals. It's, they realize the stake of things. They realize what we can do. And if you replace us with just your standard rank and file, you know, infantry soldier or a standard doctor, they immediately fall apart because, you know, there is a certain amount of training. There is a certain special attitude you have to have in order to work for this organization. And if you just come in here with this idea that things are just going to work out because you followed the rule of law, you followed everything to the letter like most doctors and military people do, you're going to fail. We've had doctors come out here, you know, real professionals, right, who have actually done extremely well in America and the UK and things like that. And they get out here and they're like, I can't do this. I can't work here. And it's not like they don't have the ability to. It's just that, you know, you have to be able to cross some kind of moral, ethical ground in order to keep working. You know, you have to do surgery on this person without anesthesia because there is no other choice, you know, and that that's considered immoral and unethical in the U.S. and the U.K. when it comes to medicine. But here there is literally no other choice. There is the guaranteed chance that this little kid's going to die if we don't remove his pancreas or there's a lesser chance if we do this operation, you know, without anesthesia in the middle of a jungle and he might actually live. It's an extremely difficult decision. This is why nobody ever wants to work in this place. Nobody ever wants to go to this place to work because it's so fucked. It's so hard to make these decisions. It's so, you know, when you point a gun at somebody, it's, it's you know, that, that's a human being. Like maybe he's just following orders. Maybe he's fighting because there's something we don't understand. Like in the Korean areas of Burma, you know, maybe the Korean are the bad guys in certain cases. Maybe they're the ones that are going out and overthrowing, you know, regular villages and killing the villagers there, right? And we're sitting there on this end working for them and then we start shooting at them and it's like, are we actually doing the right thing? It's hard to dial in what we do as a moral, ethical thing. And I think it's what drives most people in the organization, why they want to sit there and say, like, oh, we'll leave it to the real professionals. But there's a reason why these real professionals don't go to these places in the world. And that's because it's too fucking difficult to, to not only justify why you're there, but justify your actions as well. It must affect you going to all these war zones and these conflict zones, which are harsh conditions and operating on people as well as fighting. How do you cope with that? What's your coping mechanism? My personal coping mechanism is the fact that it's a duty at this point. You know, I've, I've fought, um, this, this was my sixth war this year, the sixth time that I picked up a rifle and, and shot at another human being. And this is the 31st hospital that I've worked in in my entire 12 year career in medicine so far. Um, and it, it affects everybody differently. You know, not everybody's not cut from the same cloth. It doesn't mean everybody's better or worse. It definitely does get to you at times. The only thing that really gets me by, um, number one, is is knowing that what we're doing is making a massive difference in people's lives. It's a difference that nobody else can do. And number two is is the people that, that help me do it. It's the people that surround me. It's the people that drive me forward. It's my veterans. It's my doctors. It's my nurses. It's all these people that join me that help drive the organization forward. You know, we, we started this to do things for people like, you know, stuck in the shadows. But realistically, at this point in time, um, you know, I feel like we're serving the people who join us just as much as the people out in the field. You know, we're giving veterans a second chance. We're giving doctors, you know, a reason to, to love medicine again. It, it's everything we literally do, everything we touch gets better, you know, and, and I can't walk away from that. I can't turn around from that and be like, oh, well, I have my own internal problems and I got to deal with it out because if I'm not there with Shout as a Hope, nobody else is going to be there. So at this point in time, it's a duty driven. It's the fact that I know that, you know, what we do makes a difference. And I know that I have a duty not only to the people there, but my own men as well. Well, now you're back in the United States. Are you planning on remaining there for the time being? Because travel is quite hard with Corona and such. And also there's a lot going on, especially with the Black Lives Matter movements and the far right and far left. Um, what's your actual plan now then? 
So we've, uh, like I said, we've expanded, but we've also like kind of put our hands in more cookie jars. We've been not asked to stay to keep an eye on things, but we've been asked to kind of like stick around until November because there's a lot more crazy shit happening here. Um, we've been asked by both Antifa and by the police department here in Vegas to actually come and help out, you know, because we're, we're, we try to maintain the neutrality, but because we work with we Antifa in Syria and we work with the police department here as well, we've trained them in mass casualties and things like that. Um, you know, that we kind of want to wait and see what happens here because right now, you know, with, with it's so hard to get anything done with COVID, especially out in the world. Um, it's hard to get flights. Everything's more expensive. Um, we just blew through our entire budget, you know, trying to get shit done in Kurdistan. So I need to build up money again, but I can't because we're not teaching. Um, and things here in America, which is my home country and I love my country, is, is completely falling apart. You know, people are getting far more left and far more right. People are fighting each other. Oh, hold on. What do you mean Antifa have come to you? What what are they asking you to do? What do they want from you? Because a lot of people refer to Antifa as extremists, the f- extreme left organization. Yeah, so we, we've fought with members of Antifa in Syria. We've trained them in Syria. And it's a different kind of Antifa over there than here. But, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, as we're leaving, a lot of our members... Well, even Donald Trump announced a few weeks ago that he wants to brand Antifa as a terrorist organization in the United States. Nope. He said that they are, but they haven't been classified yet. He can't just say things and it happens. There's a whole process involved in that. You know, it might even take more than a couple of years. And the thing is, at the end of the day, like I said, is that I don't really agree with the Antifa here. I think it's a bunch of skinny white college kids who have no sense of reality of what actually happens in the world. But I also remember that just like my guys in Syria, there are real members of Antifa who do have a general plan who want to see things improve. You know, those are the guys that are asking us like, hey, when you back to the U.S., you know, can you help us do this? Can you help us train for this? Can you help us, you know, look at this, right? Just like the police department saying like, hey, can you help us, you know, control this? Can you train us for this? Um, and things like that. It's it's worrying because both sides have so dehumanized each other. And that's, that's the main reason why I'm sticking around right now is that I'm seeing this divide getting worse. And every day it's all media driven. They're saying, well, the left is scum, the right is scum, you know, they're not even humans or they're foreign activists they're foreign actors, you know, and like, I'm going to kill them to come on my property and kill them to see them on the street. And it's happening, you know, and I firmly believe that that's, you know, the U S is not hanging in a good direction. And if something happens here that I have a duty to my own country as well, you know, to help make things right. And so they're protected. And we just haven't picked a side yet. Well, as you say, you feel like it's your duty and you've all you clearly got your critics and people out there that question what you're doing, but if you're content and you're happy with what you're doing, now I've seen you firsthand operating um, out in the Middle East, helping a lot of people. So keep up the good work, mate, and thank you very much for your time. It's much appreciated. Take care. About any time, Emil. Thank you for having me. Well, that's another podcast. If you're listening to this, you can actually watch it on YouTube, on my channel, Emil Geeson. Get yourself over there, subscribe. Also, if you haven't subscribed yet, wherever you get your podcast from, please subscribe, rate it, send a little report in there, say what you think of it. Be honest. If you like it, dislike it, I don't care either or just want to hear your feedback. You can also send me a message on Emil Geeson on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You'll find me everywhere. And please tell your friends and family to subscribe. Let's grow this. And please, let's not forget my sponsors, which are Frontier Risks. Check them out at www.frontierrisks.com for all your security and risk um, training. Check them guys out. Great guys. So that's another one. And that's me done now. Until next time, don't argue with stupid people. I'm your host, Emil Geeson. Thank you very much. Take care.